0: I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest, Iconic Staircase Edition. It's Wednesday, September 25th, 2019. On today's show, Ad Astra is the latest from director James Gray. It stars Brad Pitt as an astronaut flying into deep space to retrieve his wayward father. And then a band of HGTV all-stars unites with the six Brady kids to recreate the iconic, get used to that word, sitcom house in a very Brady renovation. And finally, The word and concept meritocracy is getting a workout these days. We discuss a long piece in the Atlantic Monthly by the journalist George Packer. Joining me today is the deputy managing editor of the LA Times, of course, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. How's it going?
1: Hello, hello. It's going well.
0: Good. Phoning in from LA, I should say. And then uh, in the New York studio, we have Dana Stevens, who is the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey, greetings. Shall we dig in? Please. Glorious. Ad Astra. At last, I thought, a movie in Latin just kidding, takes place in what is only, (laughs) I know terrible, is only identified as the near future in which Brad Pitt is astronaut Roy McBride, a stolid, solid bit player in the world of space travel, whose one real claim to fame is his father, played by Tommy Lee Jones. He was a legendary pioneer of deep space, a man who was lost, or at least so the world believes, to the first man journey to Neptune. That was a mission to discover if we could hear intelligent life elsewhere. It turns out McBride Sr. may still be alive and he's messing with us if he is. And so, the US government enlists Roy to go into space and find out the journey into the galactic void is counterposed throughout with a deep Oedipal journey within oh yeah booyah and by the way we don't have a clip proper we do have the trailer let's uh let's listen to that i do what i do because of my dad he gave his life for the pursuit of knowledge because up there is where our story is going to be told This is
1: a
2: top secret psychological evaluation. Please describe your current emotional state.
1: I'm steady, calm, ready to do my job to the best of my abilities. I will remain calm. I will remain focused. You
0: look just like your dad there. was the first man to the outer solar system he was a pioneer but there was much more to him than that dana in your review you make a brilliant point which is the you know essentially what you do is you group this movie with this developing mini genre of hushed existential space operas uh, first Man, I'm forgetting the others, what are they?
2: Uh, I think I mentioned Interstellar and uh, and Gravity, all of which we can get into how, but all of those movies have something in common with this one for sure. I should say that that's not originally my idea. I feel like that's something that's kind of emerging in criticism, and there was a great article by Bilge Ibiri at the time of The Village Voice, now of New York Magazine and he he had a big sort of sprawling survey of what he called auteur driven space movies and was just kind of observing and ad Astro, was which had was still just being anticipated at that point was one of the movies he pointed to to illustrate this idea that you know when a when a filmmaker wants to reach out and stretch and do something he's never done before and kind of philosophically define the form that he now makes a space movie. He or she, although these have all been he's in this case, makes a space movie. And so this is James Gray's space movie. I don't know if James Gray is a familiar figure to you guys or to most listeners. James Gray is a filmmaker who might, if you're not a big follower of emerging directors, be a bit under the radar. The Lost City of Z was his his last movie before this and, and maybe his biggest production before this. But before that, he was, I think, somewhat known for making these small, um, sort of ethnic crime dramas, and a one romance called Two Lovers with Joaquin Phoenix that was much acclaimed at the time. But was making kind of small character-driven, earthbound movies and, you know, has completely changed course for this one and, as we'll get into, has made something that's really kind of philosophical and sprawling. I really liked Ad Astra. It surprised me that it was not ponderous. I went in thinking of all the things that this movie will be, one of them will certainly be ponderous. And that was somewhat based on, you know, this fact that the space movie has become sort of the new career-defining gesture for would-be auteurs. But also because of the placement of Brad Pitt front and center in the marketing campaign, and the fact that the the marketing campaign was essentially just Brad Pitt in a spacesuit staring at you, <laughs> you know, with with um, celestial music swirling around him. But to my surprise, I found this movie really swift moving. Uh, it's got some humor. It has some really good thrills and chases in it. Even though it is primarily a film about. Brad Pitt staring into the blank void of space and thinking about his dad. There's something about it that has a kind of lightness to it that surprised me. What did you all think?
1: I had a very similar response. Like, I had already not been excited to see this movie. And then I read some review that it was like Brad Pitt in space with daddy issues. And was like, oh, my God. And... (laughs) Not interested in that. And then, um, I think you referenced Blade Runner in reference to its voiceover in in talking about this film in your review, Dana. But there is something incredibly specific, dark, tart, and funny about the. It's not quite a dystopia. It's just a very plausible future.
2: It's no more of a dystopia than we live in already, right? It's sort of like yeah, late, late, late exactly. capitalism. You
1: know, flying domestic to the moon, uh, the kind of indignity of having to pay $125 for your pillow and blanket, just the mundanity of seeing a, a old-fashioned escalator just at the moon base just they've got all this new technology but they still can't improve on the escalator um then having the moon base kind of look like some of the tunnels that connect various subway stations to the air trains in new york like just the production design and the specificity of the vision of the future as being neither a dream like her style dystopia nor a darker one but just kind of like yeah everyone's just kind of still shuffling along I loved that. I mean, it's so interesting. I would say that my interest in this movie diminished the further it got from Earth. And so the final third, which I don't think we need to get into the specifics too much, but which I think it's safe to say are the where the bulk of the, you know, Brad Pitt alone and avoid having daddy issues stuff goes on. I my interest flagged. Uh, I didn't I, I sort of wished it had stayed closer to the things it was tartly satirizing with its production design and it's really distinct voice, but, uh, no, I really, I really liked it. I liked it a lot.
0: Mm. I mean, I, I, so I agree with you that the movie is in its own way an implicit rebuke to the Spielberg of the seventies, maybe to close encounters in particular, a movie about the absolute wonder of being visited here from creatures from out of space and how it, um, rescues us from our own mundanity and um maybe mutual spites. And this movie's the opposite. You're getting shot out into space following the intuition that there must be something else intelligent out there somewhere. Only to learn the lesson that wherever you go there you are, right? I mean, it's mundanity follows the human species. Mundanity and spite follow the human species wherever it goes and and we keep seeking out, you know, when it was just the earth we kept seeking out blank spaces on the map. I mean, that's sort of what connects this movie to Lost City of Z. I mean, this aching propulsive need to find blank spaces on the map in order to find places uncontaminated by us, you know? And so I love the movie for asking this central moral question, which is where does this preoccupation with the presence of intelligent life in the universe come from? And is that really so healthy? And I don't want to give anything away, but I I agree the movie diminishes in dramatic force as it goes on and becomes way more explicitly uh, Oedipal. in its preoccupations, but but the ultimate you know ultimate answer it gives about the presence or absence of life in the universe is actually really wise and sort of unsettlingly wise, and it makes you realize this is what the entire movie has been bu- built around, almost way more than the um, super overdetermined relationship between Pitt and Tommy Lee Jones, which to my mind just kind of goes off into this Nietzschean you know Oedipal slash Nietzschean pseudo philosophy the one thing i will say about the movie is gray is a marvelous director i think and and this film is nothing if not ruminative there was just only so much cud chewing that i could sit there and take i mean after a while hush atmosphere dim lighting slow pacing these things begin to seem like a substitute for profundity and not uh, profundity itself
2: Steve when you say James Gray is a great director I feel like we should we should flesh out a little bit what that feels like because we're talking I mean this is a hard movie to summarize because there is a lot of silence and uh, and a lot of sort of a visual wonder that doesn't really translate into a conversation. But I don't want to give the idea that this is just kind of a draggy, long, vague trip into space with Brad Pitt, because there's some, as I said, some action in there that I think is is really memorable. I specifically want to cite the moon buggy car chase, Mm -hmm. which I don't think I've ever seen anything like that in a science fiction movie. Right. I mean, it's this. So the premise of the car chase is just that Brad Pitt needs to get to the launch pad on the moon for this secret mission that he's, he's heading off on. And they have to traverse this crater or, you know, the lip of a crater and kind of get across this blank space on the moon. But in this near future, big capitalist universe, there are space pirates, people on the moon who want mining rights or there's some sort of no man's land on the moon that they have to cross. And then there's this great car chase across it in which, of course, they're in moon gravity condition. So James Gray is able to use both the scale, you know, the unfamiliar scale of this moonscape and also the idea that gravity doesn't work the same way. So, you know, if your car goes crashing mm-hmm into a deep moon crater you're not necessarily going to be harmed you might just climb out of it in your spacesuit and get on with your day so there's some imaginative use of the fact of phys- the physics of space you know that i found really impressive i also love all the zero gravity scenes there's a whole lot of scenes of people you know floating in those zero gravity conditions that we always see astronauts broadcasting from space in but they're doing things like having knife fights (laughs) you know and uh, punching space baboons I mean I don't want to give away all the things that happen in zero gravity but they were really impressively filmed and I heard James Gray give a talk after a screening where he said well I asked him this question because I wanted to know how those were accomplished I said were people swimming in a tank and you somehow did CGI around it how did it look so real that they were in zero g and it wasn't done with CGI. It was all practical effects. It was people suspended on wires. And he was describing how wow. Brad Pitt or whoever it was that was just suspended on these wires could only do a few seconds, so many seconds of the take before they would have to stop and throw up because it's so disconcerting to be, you know, spinning around without orientation in that way. But mm. it's extremely effectively done.
1: Yeah, I mean, technically it's a marvel. And I also just really loved, I, I don't know really how to describe it, the, the texture of both emotional and actual of the technology and the experience. And it's not as though these other films that we've talked about don't do interesting things too. I loved, I really loved first man. I will say first man, you know, I think we talked about it early on before it became kind of an award season dud last year. This was Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong through the lens of, of Damien Chazelle. I actually think that movie was wonderful. This movie reminds me more of the Martian in that it has a sense of humor and a, kind of precision about the practicalities of life you know out there and i'm ready to read the dissertation about the the mechanical and practical effects but i love that there's there's a moment when a kind of co-captain of one of these rockets uses like a very familiar social blandness to try to evade admitting that he's like afraid to go Answer a Mayday call and just kind of the social realities of being part of a small crew that's hurtling out into the void, I thought was fantastic. I also thought it was interesting because there was a lot of tension about various pieces of this, but there are also a lot of ways in which the technology just worked. Like if you think about in gravity, the stress uh, of, you know, feeling like every millimeter of a push in the wrong direction could send a spacewalking astronaut hurtling trajectory wise. Irretrievably away from whatever potentially earthbound object they were trying to get to. There were lots of times when Brad Pitt just seemed supremely confident that he was going to, like, you know, meet the socket with the gate or whatever. <laughs> like, do you know certain certain things are presented as more and less difficult in these films, and it's always sort of interesting to figure out how they make their own mechanics. But again, just the precision and flawedness of the world that it depicts is really kind of electrifying to be in.
2: Agree. I mean, even though I'm pretty sure that if we were watching this with Neil deGrasse Tyson or somebody, they would say that a lot of the stunts and things that happen are are physically impossible, but within the physics of the movie, attention is paid to every detail and you feel that.
0: Well, this is the second movie we've seen in a very short period of time that features uh, Brad Pitt. He's the Apollonian god in um, Tarantino's uh, Hollywood film. Here he is uh, uh, dark and brooding. Uh, What do we think of him?
2: I love thinking of this paired with Tarantino's film because it almost seems like this comes to to answer some of the questions that that movie left unanswered about whether or not um, Tarantino was... Was leveling any critique of the hyper masculinity of of the movie, right? And uh, and this movie is all about that. I mean, even though it has no important female characters, essentially, and I've mentioned in my review that Liv Tyler plays, you know, a really classic sort of sailor's wife <laughs> waiting at home, and uh, there's there's really not much of a chance for her to do much. But nonetheless, I feel like the the bulk of this movie really functions as this pretty savage analysis of what it is to be a man, <laughs> right? I mean. Brad Pitt is totally out of touch with his emotions, constantly lying to this psychological test machine that he has to periodically report to, to make sure that he still has enough mental fitness to be on the mission. Essentially, the more he lies to the machine, the better grades he gets, right? I was really touched and sort of amused by that scene where he starts to open up and and be honest with the, the mental fitness machine. And that's the first time he fails the test. And uh, suddenly his superiors are coming in saying, we don't know if you're fit to do this mission. I mean, it really is all about how, you know, masculinity and being utterly emotionally shut down is crucial to doing the kind of job that he's doing that presumably his dad has been doing on his space mission as well. So when the two of them meet, somewhat disappointing because I think that Tommy Lee Jones character is not developed enough he's really underwritten and you don't understand his motivations but in terms of the father-son relationship i felt like there was there was more going on there than you know your standard sappy daddy issues story i think that there was there was a real thinking about what it is to form oneself as a man
1: yeah i mean i think this movie in some ways is like a withering critique of the futility of a male-driven version of achievement which is like Leave the world and the moon base, uh, Nathan's hot dog, having garbage dump and just keep trying to go farther and farther away on an obsessed and ultimately futile quest while destroying the planet and the world and all of your relationships. Um, It's dark and funny. And Brad Pitt is kind of the perfect, you know, golden rocket in which to offer that critique. I think this might be my favorite of the space movies. No, I can't have liked this more than The Martian. I don't know. It's there there I like I want to read all the dissertations about this body of work.
2: <laughs> this is very different from The Martian. I mean, if we can cordon off The Martian because it it's it takes place in one spot, right? It's not actually about space exploration. It's about space strandedness. <laughs> and so it's sort of Mars-bound. But if you put this with the ones that are that are about, you know, people moving out into space, I would agree with you. I liked it much better than Interstellar. And as much as I liked First Man, I feel like First Man was a little one-note compared to the the complexity of this movie. Also, just Brad Pitt brings something so special to this role. And I, I think it's worth seeing, if only because in one single year between the Tarantino movie and this movie, Brad Pitt has turned in two really astonishing performances as this kind of hyper-competent, hyper-rugged dude who nonetheless has a lot going on under the surface that contradicts that.
0: All right, before we go any further, now is the moment in our show where we talk about business. I'm sure we have some. Dana, what what do you got?
2: Yep, our exciting business is that we have a couple of live shows coming up. I feel like we haven't done a live show in way too long. I'm really glad we have some coming up. The first is in L.A. on November 13th at the Barnsdall Gallery Theatre in Barnsdall Art Park. And then two nights later, on November 15th, we will be in Vancouver at the Granville Island stage. Uh, you can find out more information about both these shows and get tickets for them at slate.com slash live. I assume there'll also be some sort of socialization opportunity afterwards. We generally, either before or after live shows, do a cocktail hour type thing. So I hope to meet a bunch of you in LA and in Vancouver in this fall. I'm so excited. We're, we're taking a West Coast tour. It'll be good.
0: I love the idea of this West Coast tour. Yeah, no, I'm very excited to go.
2: Yeah, and we will have to figure out what topics to do. As always, it's fun to figure out some sort of regional specific topics and guests for those shows. So that's all in the making now. Also in Slate Plus today, we'll be talking about the Emmys. Since Julia is now directing cultural coverage at the LA Times, the Emmys were a huge part of her weekend, right, Julia? You were assigning, you were watching, you were editing things. I assume you were just all Emmys all the time. It was an all Emmys weekend, yes. So I want to hear a little bit of that background, and then we'll also just talk about the show itself, the telecast, what won, what didn't, what we're happy or sad about in Slate Plus today. So to hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, you can, of course, sign up for our membership program, Slate Plus, for just $35 for your first year. You will get extended ad-free versions of this show and all of your other favorite Slate podcasts and many other benefits. So if you want to support the Culture Gab Fest, please go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus. Also, we have a favor to ask. Our partner is conducting a survey and would be grateful for your help in answering a few questions. It will take less than 10 minutes of your time and your participation helps support our advertisers and thus help support us. Please go to slatestudy.com to complete the short survey now. All right, back to the
0: show. The Brady Bunch, the genial sitcom about a blended family that all of you have seen, ran from 1969 to 1974, or roughly from uh, Berkeley riots up into the Nixon impeachment. I say that only half glibly. The show was a super idealized version of nuclear family America that aired just as the post war social contract was falling apart. An architect dad, a perky homemaker mom, live in help, and seemingly no care in the world deeper than playing ball in the house. It was not, a, I was very surprised to discover this. It was not a huge. Huge hit at all when it first came out, but it entered the collective unconscious of the country through reruns and cable syndication. The house that served as the exterior shot for the show came onto the market. It was bought by HGTV. Now a band of HGTV All-Stars is renovating it with help from the reunited Brady Kids. Renovation TV crossed with pop culture nostalgia, crossed with America's inability to separate reality from fantasy. What is not to love? Let's listen to a clip.
2: Laying in this comfy little bed, bring back any fun memories from the show. We didn't use white sheets because white filmed
1: green for some reason. Oh. So they were kind of a dirty gray. They were like like old underwear color. So <laughs> what kind of old
0: underwear? <laughs>
1: Something skewed me out. This is going to be a functional house. I can see Mike's stand. I can see the staircase. As soon as we get all the details, like the wallpaper and everything, each room is going to be perfect.
0: All right, Julia, before we go any further, number of steps or angle?
1: Oh, angle, definitely, but also burn the whole thing down. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, I love it. You spiked the volleyball. That's I always love it when that happens. Okay, well, what, what am I referring to? <laughs> I mean, we should for-
1: clarify that what you're referring to is they acquired the house, which was shot for the facade of the Brady house in the opening credits of that show and in general use in that show. And then the conceit of the show somehow is that America is counting on eight separate HGTV Regulars, I take it from the breezy way in which they're introduced, and all six Brady kids. And at one point, a producer who is on camera for some reason says, If we don't get all six kids, America will be devastated. <laughs> but anyway, they need this group of 14 to undertake the project of recreating all of the interior sets of the Brady house, which, you know, existed on stage five at some Paramount lot or something, within or behind the facade of this house, which is in fact much smaller than a house that would sleep six children and plus leave room for Alice, the housekeeper. So they do that, and they constantly berate us about the essential stakes of this mission (laughs) with lines like, America will be crushed if we don't get the angle of the iconic staircase just right, or, you know, as Marsha the actress who played Marsha is Maureen McCormick. telling someone at a custom fabric printing place to fill in more leaves and greenery as they try to recreate the iconic fabric of the iconic sofa. Yeah, like, I, I, just everything about this show is so misbegotten. <laughs> and I'm clearly wrong because apparently this thing was so highly rated. It was the top rated premiere in the whole history of HGTV. But What? <laughs> Like, nobody thought the house was there. Nobody cares if it is there. I don't care who (laughs) remakes it. Why would you even want
2: it? Why does it matter if it's the same? Like... Ah! <laughs> You're right. The the, the, uh, the assigning of stakes by every member of the renovation team, from the Brady kids to all kind of six of the indistinguishable, all-white architects and uh, contractors who are working on it, is no- is nowhere located in reality, just like the house that they're reconstructing never existed, right? I mean, this was used for exterior shots, and there was a, a lot somewhere else. And probably the first 20 minutes of the first hour-long episode like all reality tv this is incredibly padded the first episode just repeats every single talking point over and over and probably spends the first 20 minutes establishing that there's exterior shots taken in one place but the actual interior was on this other lot like we (laughs) grasp that right we have all grown up watching filmed narratives of various kinds and we can fully grasp that idea without having every single one of the grown-up brady kids reinforce it for us
0: I loved it. <laughs> what? I loved it. Okay, so first things first, I'll date myself. I watched this show in its uh, original uh, uh, incarnation when it was uh, actually aired on, I think, Thursday nights, Friday nights, Thursday <laughs> nights on TV. Uh, I was five years old in 1969, so I watched it up through about fourth grade. It burrowed deep, deep. It, it like squeezed its way. Uh, in between my Freudian Oedipal neuroses and my Jungian archetypes. It's right down there in the Steve Metcalf mental basement. Of course, of course, let me preface this by saying that the the hype job, you know, is just preposterous. It's like they're trying to rescue and preserve the last remaining copy of Hamlet. You know, that's ridiculous and that's overdone, but it's, I think, a little tongue-in-cheek. And of course, if only we preserved historic architecture in this country with the same Piety that we revere our fake collective memories. And of course, if only in this freaking country, we could place that much coordinated effort and intelligence into nourishing, educating, and loving actual living real children, as opposed to, you know, fake ones on TV. But what what the show has going forward at a basic level is simply, a te- it's a technical challenge show. It's how do you footprint into this existing house, this uh, soundstage uh, layout, right? And the two don't go together at all. They have no relationship to one another. And so that just is interesting. But to me, what really makes it good is in the first episode, there's a, you know, it has to really count as a money shot which is they've renovated the downstairs and they've gotten it to be a a precise replica of the iconic stage set complete with the properly angled staircase. And they get these six actors who are now middle-aged, you know, at best uh, and they walk through the front door and it's at that moment you have to give it up because that was when I realized these people spent their real childhood making this thing that has delighted hundreds of millions of people. You can't get away from the weird, like human beings are so fucking incorrigibly human that no matter how much kitsch and postmodernism you throw at them, they exhibit their humanity. And these people are floored that this has happened. And they're also at that point in their lives where they're realizing that this is inevitably the first line in their obituary, and they seem very at peace with that. I mean, I know that this is a pretty superficial piece of programming, and if they're not, it's probably well hidden. But there is this, you know, odd way in which every now and then I think about the zombie afterlife of people who become famous in that way when they're young, and then have to live this entire life as a real human being. And there's just a kind of, I think, kind of real feeling of alignment and reconciliation between the real and the make-believe that happens in the show in spite of itself. And so my inner Adorno had to stand down.
2: But Steve, I feel like the show does a disservice to precisely what you were just talking about. We don't get any sense. All right. I've only seen two episodes, two very long episodes so far, but (laughs) they don't spend any time sitting down with the former Brady kids and saying, what did this mean to your life? Tell me a memory from this part of the set right um tell there's me what it was bit, like to work a with so and so and also what have they been doing since then you know maybe there're different degrees to which they were willing to disclose that but there's this moment very late in the first episode when they're trying to reconstruct the iconic horse statue because everything in the house must be labeled with that <laughs> adjective <laughs> that sat on the kind of sideboard of the Brady's house and they can't they found the original horse but it's broken and then they have another one that's like it and they can't figure out how to reconstruct it Th- then suddenly late in the show we discover that the former Peter Brady Christopher Knight understands a lot about 3D printing and he has this idea like let's get a 3D printer as I did in my business for many years and that's how they reconstruct the horse but wouldn't it have been good to know going in that that one of the former Brady kids has that knowledge. And I just learned from our producer this week, Jessamyn Wally, that he runs a furniture company, Christopher Knight, which makes him very well suited to this house renovation project, but they haven't told us that up front. So I just feel like there's some real writing problems with this show where we're not given enough groundwork to understand who these people are so that we care about the thing that they're making together.
0: Would would I have wanted Julia, this show to have been co-directed by Bergman? Yes. And had shades of wild strawberries and this, you know, deep penetrating look back into the arc of one's life. Yes. But I live in America, you know, a country in which probably half the viewers don't understand that there was no relationship between the exterior shot and the soundstage. And this is what we have to work with.
2: Oh, man, Steve, this is one of those things like The Bachelor where I just, I learn a whole new side of you. The fact that you love this is just, it's so, it, it enriches <laughs> your ever more complexifying character.
0: I it's it's
2: super
1: weird. I agree, Dana. It's super weird. Uh, I I will also say that I, I felt that I detected in Steve's uh, introduction to why he liked the show the suggestion that perhaps I might have been, you know, generationally wrong for it. But no, I also spent my whole childhood watching The Brady Bunch. I've probably seen every single Episode of the Brady Bunch. <laughs> to me, in fact, that staircase is iconic <laughs> because yeah, I, you know, I grew up in New England, and the, no mid-century modernism was anywhere near me, and I didn't, I, you know, I'd never really seen that aesthetic. Like I, when, you, if you ask me to picture the seventies, I think I probably pictured the Bradys. Like they are not wrong, actually, for all that we're mocking them <laughs> for using the word iconic. It is kind of an iconic. Structure, but I just—I I mean, I—I I get that this is a boring opinion that just makes me like a a, a work a snob. But just the deep stupidity <laughs> of the show, Julia.
2: How dare you be anti stupidity, <laughs> you elitist? And
1: and the deep, the deep, like assumed stupidity of the audience. I just, I don't, I mean, like, I probably, I, I really love. Thinking about design and architecture, and and I really hate reality shows mostly. And I've never watched, I think, a single minute of HGTV before. So I as I was watching it, I felt like I was experiencing this other language. And we probably should, should have have had Rebecca Lavoie, um, mom and dad are fighting host and HGTV fan and expert, Rebecca Lavoie on to help interpret the show for us. But I was just like, what is this i mean i just if you're if you are going to be interested in in restoring a house from the 60s to the to i mean restoring is just so deeply the wrong word yeah yeah like why wouldn't you want to learn something about those design aesthetics or no the here's another amazing just insulting moment of stupidity Like, briefly, some Chiron shows up, like, I think without even anyone saying the names out loud, and was like, the original production designers of the Brady Bunch were blah, blah, and blah. Like, if we actually care if America is counting on and would be devastated by a misstep within the process of redoing (laughs) this house, reconstructing this house, constructing this house for the first time within a real house for some reason, like perhaps we would like to learn about those three production designers and what it meant to (laughs) conjure a home that looked like this. It's just so deeply (laughs) incurious. It's so incurious. Uh, One of our arts reporters and, and um, a student of architecture and design, Carolina Miranda wrote this wonderful piece. Uh, for us looking at the actual architect of the actual Brady house and what befell him and just kind of thinking about the history of this. But she points out in the piece that like five people in the show say like, oh, we wanted to save this house from being turned into a McMansion. We wanted to spare this house from being like knocked over and gut renovated. And she points out that, in fact, that is exactly what is happening <laughs> on this show. Like apart from the facade, the whole back of the house has been like housectomied and, like, is being replaced with this entirely different fabricated house that has to do with ideas of what a family home (laughs) should look like in 1969, but not actually what homes were built like in 1959. And there are, like, lots of interesting questions you could explore there, and they just are they just seem to have staged it all so obviously to be like ah there was footage of like greg painting a wall so let's like we can cut back to that and then talk to the greg character about paint or there was a (laughs) iconic episode where bobby broke a vase and so we have a picture of bobby with or peter with next to breaking stuff so we'll just have peter throw a rock through a window because certainly that's like the the obvious way that you demolish a window when you're demolishing house like of course you don't just fucking throw wrong like <laughs> ah! <laughs> I, I <laughs> gotta God, say they made me so angry
0: <laughs> I, I love it when and Julia and I swap sim chips uh, on our show. That was, that was awesome. That was like that was like Ali coming off the ropes in Zaire. That was just fucking brutal. But listen, it's not good. It's just somehow, it's somehow great in spite of itself, which is, you know, these days is sometimes all you can ask. I did not want this to, uh, segment to end without shouting out to that LA Times piece uh, by um, Carolina Miranda. That is a terrific, terrific piece of criticism. People should definitely find it.
2: Yeah I was going to endorse that Julia you, you, you snagged my endorsement but um, but as long as we're talking about it yeah it's on the LA Times by Carolina Miranda and rather than watch this extremely silly show <laughs> you should read this piece about it which will actually give you something to think about.
0: I love the icy tone to your voice as you amputate away a part of my childhood Dana.
2: I mean the other thing Steve that just astonishes
1: me about your loving this is like as I was watching it not only was I filled with you know detest and repulsion but I also like I felt like I was inside the David Foster Wallace version of the future like these sad child stars whose actual childhood was being like forced to sit in unnatural configurations on couches in order to represent an American family that could acknowledge the realities of divorce or were they both widows in any event blended families uh, on uh, changing unorthodox family structures and you know like the who who described how long days set at the dining room table were because there were eight one shots and they just were stuck there all day so they they'd like already been crippled by just the dumbness of pop entertainment <laughs> and then you see in the interest of all of them they they've just spent the last Four decades, like, or however many decades, just kind of dining out on it or trying trying to resuscitate the spark of that iconic or, or moment away of their youth. It, yeah. Or running away from it, or whatever. But as Dana points out, it's not curious about that at all. Like, I just, it, it felt dystopian. Like, it felt like, oh, God... All they want to do is go back to that well, and all we want them to do is go back to that well, and we just want to recursively make them be the Bradys once a decade for the rest of their lives, and then this particular version of them being the Bradys is about actually slavishly recreating the very first Proustian moment of being like trapped veal kid stars like
2: (laughs) completely agree actually david foster wallace is a great comparison i was thinking of thomas pinchon when i was watching it i mean there's just something about there's even a moment where one of the brady kids says in voiceover um fantasy has become reality, you know, and they're really excited about it. And the show is just 100% behind this idea that this weird 50-year-old fantasy of white suburbia is going to be reinvented behind the facade of this house. I mean, the one reason I would want to watch this until the end, or at least watch the last episode of it, is to see what happens to the house afterward. You know, are they going to, like, give it to a homeless person or something at least? Or is it going to become a Brady museum? Or is is Steve going to buy it and go live there? I, I want to know the future of the Brady home.
0: You two are pitiless. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. It's a very Brady renovation. It's fucking awesome TV. You got to watch it. Uh, tell Dana and Julia how wrong they are. All right. Moving on. The system that dominates our waking hours, commands our unthinking devotion, and drives us like orthodox followers of an exacting faith to extraordinary, even absurd feats of exertion is not democracy, says George Packer in the Atlantic Monthly. It's meritocracy, the system that claims to reward talent and effort with a top-notch education and a well-paid profession. Uh, Julia, let me start with you. George Packer, who's uh, widely regarded as an important American journalist, has written a very long, a 10,000-word, essay, memoir, polemic for the Atlantic, which interweaves his own personal experience with his own kids in the public and private schools, both of New York City, with a more abstract uh, meditation really on the relationship between social class and merit relative to what he reads as a new PC moment. The piece is very long. Parts of it are extremely personal. Other parts of it are much more uh, historical and theoretical in their orientation, it's gotten an extremely, to put it mildly, mixed reaction on Twitter and uh, um, among other journalists. Uh, I'm very curious to know what you made of it.
1: Oh, I mean, I had a couple thoughts. One, this piece has come in for a lot of criticism, and I think much of that criticism is warranted. And I'll get to that in a moment. But I would also just say, as a baseline, that. Writing personally about the life choices you make for your family, navigating this set of issues, which are, in fact, fraught and fucked, is hard. And he's done it, and he's been, I think, uh, well, I think we can get to how honest or, or rigorous in his self-examination he's being. But just the bravery of, you know, looking at your choices and articulating them and and, and trying to suss through what is going on with education in this country, what is going on with inequality in this country, and what is going on for parents who are trying to navigate that is admirable. I think that the piece, though, takes some strange jogs, which because it's framed so personally, I can't really argue with. I mean, if that's where the arc of his children's education led his thinking, like, okay, Um, I mean, okay for however many thousands of words in the Atlantic, but sure, okay. But I was not convinced that he was applying the type of intellectual rigor that he seemed to yearn for in his children's educational institutions to the arguments he was making here. Because by the end of the essay, he seems to suggest that a push for better access to education for children from more diverse backgrounds... Is necessarily conflated with a kind of fuzzy-headedness about what, in fact, they are learning, and that the Twain can't be separated without really making that case. He seems uh, uh, itchy at a bunch of rhetoric used in in some of the New York schools he's encountered, and used by Bill De Blasio's administration in in transforming and trying to tackle the segregation of public education in New York. But
2: I did not find those
1: parts of the piece persuasive. I'm very curious what you guys thought.
0: Yeah, Dana, what take it away. What Where did you, uh, where did you come out on this?
2: Well, before I get into my response to it, I feel like we need to frame a little bit more because it's a very long and intricate, um, not even quite argument, but just story that he tells about his children's education. Maybe we should summarize that a bit. I mean, essentially, George Packer is writing about his own, his and his wife's struggle to manage the education system in New York. And as he acknowledges, although we can talk about whether he acknowledges it Enough and exactly what that acknowledgement means. But as he acknowledges, he's in the position of being able to choose between private and public education options for his kids. He wants his kids to go to a public school, but he winds up struggling with the school that his son ends up testing into, in part because of testing and because of a scandal that happens there. That, scandal is the wrong word, but a, a, a debate among the parents at that school that happens about standardized tests and whether they should opt to pull their kids out of them. And ha- he talks about how it becomes more or less the orthodox view of most of the progressive parents at this pretty progressive public school his son is in, that your kids should not take the tests, the standardized tests, because you know they're racially biased, they have all the problems we know about, etc. But after this new orthodoxy descends, if you actually do want your kid to take the standardized test, in part just so that they can learn the skill of taking standardized tests, which they'll have to do later in life, then, you know, he sort of paints himself as becoming a pariah of the school. That's only one of several debates that he sketches, but essentially he gives this portrait of a public school that's totally riven by these debates about identity and uh, class and race, and, uh, and that he didn't feel that his kid was getting the best education there. His son is still in a public school. He sent his daughter to a private school. You know, he deals with his guilt about that, but essentially he's delivering up this fairly dark vision of even the best ranked public schools in New York, and I guess by extension the U.S., although we you could argue that this is a pretty blinkered New York-centric piece that might not have a lot of application to education systems outside the city.
0: Yeah, I mean, Dana, I will never forget the moment that I had to make, and my wife and I had to make the initial set of decisions about how our kids were going to be educated. We were at the time living in Brooklyn, and it was the first time a lot of highly abstract notions that I had about social class, social justice, privilege, confronted head on what it means to have children and what it means to raise them middle class and within a set of meritocratic expectations and what it is you want to pass along specifically to them at a possible cost to your own notion deeply held notions of social justice and the public good these two things do come into an excruciating conflict and the first half of the piece or portion of the piece is, I think, a relatively thoughtful and successful piece of journalism about that. Agony. And then it pivots. And I just want to read the point in the piece where where it pivots. Around 2014, a new mood germinated in America, at first in a few places among limited numbers of people, but growing with amazing rapidity and force as things tend to today. It rose up toward the end of the Obama years, disillusionment with the early promise of his presidency. This new mood was progressive but not hopeful. Um, And all of a sudden, the piece really goes into what seemed to me to be very crudely caricatured notions of the supposedly politically correct turn that the country took you know in, over the last five or so years and all of a sudden the piece becomes to my mind enormously self-serving and thoughtless and correct me if i'm wrong but this was one of my major takeaways there are a number of ways in which the many public schools in the in the United States are carefully made to be not like public schools and to mimic private schools so that it's possible for affluent mostly white parents to extract from them exactly what they would from private schools the most obvious example of course are suburban schools that use property taxes to fund the local schools so their budgets are equivalent of private schools in new york city as i understand it there's all kind of all kinds of uh, tracking segregation good schools bad schools by neighborhood and borough so that if you Strategized carefully, you might be able to secure all of the class advantages of a good e- education for your kid without having to confront this sort of agonizing choice of uh, the private advantages of social class versus the justice of a perfectly functioning meritocracy. And when that failed because people had begun to notice for completely justifiable reasons that this was simply turning public schools into another Engine of class transmission, Packer suddenly discovered he couldn't extract those benefits for his kid. And so he turned on the school system quite angrily and assigns all of its flaws and all of its problems to PC absolutism. I find that incredibly crude pivot in the middle of what was stacking up to be a subtle and thoughtful meditation on these issues. And I just want to say, as a general matter, matter, There is no easy way to write about this subject, because in this country, we've never fully come to grips with the meaning of social class. And uh, because of that, we've never teased apart this super complex relationship between class, academic excellence, and mental testing. And I am not saying that there is an easy way to separate these things out. They are probably inseparable, but to assume that the opt-out movement, for example, Uh, is turning on test taking is motivated by fatuous narcissistic identitarian politics um, and is actually going to work against the black and Latino children, poor children to me is, an m- incredibly simplistic way of looking at the relationship between uh, mental testing and and uh, poverty and social class.
1: Yeah, that same pivot in the piece is the one that bothered me, and that's where it stops feeling like a kind of an honest and revealing examination of how one balances those impulses and begins to feel like a long and public justification for having pulled his daughter out after having committed to having his son in Yeah, I sort of wish I could read a version of this essay written in 15 years because it just doesn't seem like he has that much distance from the choices he's made for his family. And I also just don't think he has enough distance yet on what the current cultural trends are. I mean, I I went to private school and then I went to a fancy college and I really cherished and valued the very excellent education I got as a very young person. And that has shaped the way I think about education. And I grew up in a family full of kind of grammar snobs, my parents were journalists, and we used to, you know, admire the grocery stores that said 10 items are fewer instead of 10 items or less. And, you know, we sort of had a culture as a family of priding ourselves on knowing the quote-unquote right way, right? We were, I was raised by prescriptivists, I guess that's the way to put it. And then I went to school and ran uh, a lot of, of kind of theory about writing and grammar and all of that as part of a writing fellowship, teaching, kind of a writing tutoring program I was part of, and, you know, just realized that all of those things that I had been taught, uh, taught to be a totally meritocratic system developed to allow the English language to offer, you know, kind of enlightenment levels of truth and clarity were also power structures that made it so that part of what I had learned with my expensive early childhood education was a way to communicate that made people think I was good but I had so many advantages on the way to that and the fact that I had been taught to deploy language in that way did not in fact mean that I was better according to some meritocratic anything and I really weighed those things and I feel like there is just a lot of dismissive hand waving at the end of this piece yes. about like why aren't they why aren't they teaching my children they they're not going to teach my children anything about the founding of this country they're only going to teach them about uh, Native American genocide and slavery and it's like well actually if you're going to teach the founding of this country it's much more honest to teach it with those things in the mix like that's part of it and if you teach the old school version of it that sort of puts those things in like sidebars with you know beige behind them as kind of things to be aware of as you track the main story which is what these white guys were doing about their taxes like that that is not a neutral way to teach history that is a loaded way to teach history and you don't have to be like a internet tyrant or an idiot to think that and he's just incredibly intellectually dismissive of Yes. Um, what these changes in education might be trying to wreak. And probably they won't all go well. And probably there are some teachers who aren't that good. I mean, the, the fundamental tragedy here is not the politics of modern political education. It's the funding of modern political education. It's yes. just the extraordinary underfunding of these schools and, and the, the incredible disrespect and lack of resources that we give to this incredibly important project of teaching our children. And, and the tragedy of that resource inequality Is the tragedy and the kind of politics of the de Blasio administration, which, you know, say what you will about de Blasio, great, stupid presidential galoot, you know, like, he's just such a big, lanky, goofball target. But, (laughs) you know, creating universal pre-K in New York and then... Extending it to universal 3k and my, you know, people I know who work in city administration say that it was done in like an incredibly bureaucratically incompetent way that's like totally unfunded and is going to collapse. But once you create those programs and that set of expectations for a city, my belief is that future leaders of New York will have to figure out how to fund it because you can't take it away. And that single legacy of his administration, whatever other galoot things he's done, strikes me as such an extraordinary blow toward fixing some of these things that the notion that Packer is spending 10,000 words griping about freaking the illiberalism of Twitter. Like, ugh.
0: Oh, it's unbelievable. No, I,
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
0: you've really put your finger on it. I mean, I just to try to refine something I said before, how are you ever, I mean, since the very beginning of mental testing with Binet and then the early army IQ testing, it has, these are such com- confounded variables. How are you ever going to separate out the acculturation of the nuclear family in a capitalist society from something totally intrinsic to the mental capacities of an individual. No one has ever figured out how to do that. And so, a certain degree of sympathetic generosity in the face of why testing might be necessary, because at the end of the day, we probably do need to sort people at least somewhat according to mental ability in order to end up with people who can be editors at the LA time, Times and doctors and help us, you know, with free speech and health or whatever. There are certain social functions that in a highly developed, you know, late capitalist society, I think actually are necessary and you're not going to get rid of at least a somewhat meritocratically excellence Based uh, education system and still have certain forms of public goodness, but that's a confounding problem. That's a that's a gut wrenching problem. It's not a simple problem. Listen, my suspicion is there's a certain kind of person who believes that they ended up where they did in life because of their own intrinsic mental excellence, and any challenge to that fact has to be beaten back as a a PC absolutism. And I'm afraid. I feel that is the motivation in this piece more than anything.
2: Yeah, and you're right, Steve, that there's a real bait-and-switch kind of logic to the way this piece proceeds, because for the first quarter of it, maybe a third of it or so, as you say, when he's just telling the story of you know making the decision about where to send his older child to school, you're kind of nodding along, saying, yeah, the education system is really screwed up in that way, and we do have to rethink meritocracy, and yeah, standardized testing, we haven't really figured out what good that does, And uh, and then suddenly... That moment that he pulls the camera out, way out, like ad astro level out, and is making these huge points about, you know, the George Bush administration, the Obama administration, this supposed 2014, you know, massive universal turn to being too PC, although that term has been thrown around for decades before 2014, so I don't know quite where he's dating that. but. You suddenly start to realize wait I've been led down the garden path to you know be nodding along with all these things that I suddenly am not nodding at anymore and it's just a piece of intellectually dishonest rhetoric. I think maybe as an editor too if I were working with this guy on this piece I would just say you need to bring in some more experts for this second half you know before you start making this big genealogy of you know American thinking about education for the last several decades you need to go talk to Nicole Hannah-Jones, the New York Times, or somebody who spends their life really rolling up their sleeves and studying on a grand scale, right? I mean, using statistics, what's happening in New York City schools and in schools around the country. It just, there's there's that moment that often happens in in personal essays. I feel like it happens a lot in modern love essays in the New York Times where somebody starts out with their own micro experience. And that part can be interesting always because it's individual to them. And then there has to be that moment where they say that it proves some sort of huge point about American society and culture and, you know, the fact that, you know, right. my, my husband broke up with me because I, you know, chewed too loudly proves everything about <laughs> that we need to know about gender relations in America. And this, this piece kind of did that on a grand scale with something much, you know, more broadly significant than why that particular couple broke up, which is, you know, how are we supposed to educate kids in this society in a reasonably equitable manner?
0: Yeah, I got to get into things quickly before we wrap the segment. The first is, um, you know, he briefly mentions No Child Left Behind, the education, federal education law passed by George Bush, without pointing out that it was an un... Pretty much an unmitigated disaster. I mean, it led to epidemics of of standardized test cheating, kill and drill, educational methods that absolutely turned off certain kinds of learners. It was just a poorly conceived, poorly executed, really pageant to show off George Bush as a supposedly sensitive uh, Republican. Uh, He doesn't go into any of that because that would be inconvenient to his thesis. I think that that's just not, I was just very shocked by that. And then the second thing I really want to say is if you want to read an intelligent piece, a thorough, thoroughly researched, sensitive, thoughtful piece of journalism about meritocracy. The piece by Paul Tuff, spelled like tough guy, T-O-U-G-H, in the New York Times Magazine, it's September 10th issue, what college admissions offices really want. It's kind of the dream piece of reporting on meritocracy at the collegiate level. And he gets in deep, I mean, a deep embed with Trinity College's uh, admissions officer about all of the Kind of brutal choices uh, the the enormous plate spinning balancing act that a college admissions officer has to go through, and how what amounts to our elite or uh, you know early blueprint for what will become each generation's elite gets formed in the admissions office offices of good colleges. I mean I think that is just an extraordinary uh, piece of journalism, and people ought to uh, send their attention there.
1: he also was on a recent episode of the of the political Gab fest, so uh, that 's another good place to hear his smart and less self-justifying thinking on the subject
0: all right well this one was called when the culture war comes for the kids it's in the atlantic october issue it's by george packer okay moving on all right now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. what do you have
2: all right. Well, since since Julia stole my initial endorsement idea, which was to send people to that really interesting Carolina Miranda reported piece on the Brady House in the LA Times, which I still think people should read, uh, I will endorse another little thing that came up in the midst of my Ad Astra research. This was actually when I was getting ready to write my review of Ad Astra. And uh, since we were talking about, you know, this being the year of Brad Pitt and having him having these two wonderful roles in Ad Astra and in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I want to send everyone to another great performance by Brad Pitt as Brad Pitt interviewing an Astra astronaut while in space, which was this great idea for a promo. Whoever had this idea was very smart. So NASA and the movie marketers worked together to get Brad Pitt into NASA headquarters, where he interviews an American astronaut named Nick Haig, who's in the International Space Station right now, who's been stationed there for most of the year, I think. And so while this guy is floating in actual zero-g conditions, he just chats with Brad Pitt about what it's like to be an astronaut in space. And he's actually seen the movie. They somehow showed it, I think, on the International Space Station to everybody who's stationed there. So they both talk about the movie and, you know, the realism of the zero G and how it was done, et cetera, and about Nick Hague's actual experience of being an astronaut. And uh, it's just really fun to see Brad Pitt not acting, just sitting there with his gray stubble and his casual... Duds, you know, just asking whatever comes into his mind to this astronaut. And as you might imagine, Brad Pitt is a very curious, intelligent, interesting guy. And so, they have quite a great conversation with long delays, of course, because they're talking through the vast reaches of galactic space. But it's really fun and interesting to watch. So, it's on NASA's website, but it's also been posted in lots of other places. It's about 20 minutes long. Brad Pitt interviewing an astronaut. We'll link to it on the show page.
0: Love it. Julia, what do you got?
1: Oh, I'm going to Endorse the, my favorite thing that's happened so far this week, which is like a, a prelude to a cultural experience, but my kids came home from school yesterday and we had dinner and one of them told me that they had been reading this book, Mrs. Piggle Wiggle. And that Mrs. Piggle Wiggle has all these cures for different people's ailments. Like there's a kid who never takes baths. so Mrs. Piggle Wiggle plants radish seeds in the dirt that is encrusting the kid and then radishes start to grow all over the kid and then the kid learns a lesson. And... It was like a Proustian. Like, I was like, oh, I used to read those, I think, with my grandmother. Like, I, it was just way deep, deep in the memory, somewhere near the Brady couch and the iconic staircase. I was like, oh my God, those books. I think I had, like, filed Mrs. Piggle Wiggle under Amelia Bedelia and had forgotten that this rhyming helper was totally different. So, anyway, we went online to try to see if they were available on Kindle so we could read some at bedtime, and they were not. There is some kind of revivification of Mrs. Piggle Wiggle as Missy Piggle Wiggle, who we did read some of those, and apparently she's Mrs. Piggle Wiggle's niece, and uh, the jury's out on those. They also appear to be written by quote-unquote powerhouse children's author Anne M. Martin, who, if I'm not mistaken, is the Babysitter's Club author, which I assume is some kind of, like, a conglomerate of Bartleby's scribes. But uh, I just, I'm going to find the real Mrs. Piggle Wiggle and reread it, and uh, I guess my endorsement is having the memory of a childhood classic conjured for you by your own child as they discover it anew.
2: Oh, yeah. Mrs. Pigglewiggle. Those books are essential. <laughs> those are incredible. I'm so glad you're discovering them. But they have to be the Betty McDonald versions.
1: And do they hold up in terms of the lessons? Like, that's the thing. They're teaching you not to be you know, you can never tell with some of these retro books, like, is there going to be a one about, like, not eating too many desserts that has bad body image issues in it or whatever?
2: Not Sometimes that I can think of. I mean, there's there's a lot of Mrs. Piggle Wiggle books, and I can't think of every story and every one, but they tend to be pretty gender neutral They're about things like you know, not putting your things away. One of my favorites as a kid was the thought you saiders. There's this group of siblings that have this ongoing joke where everything an adult says, they say, oh, I thought you said, and then they say a nonsense version <laughs> of it, which maybe was a big problem of child rearing in the <laughs> 1950s and 60s. But, uh, but it's, it's a really funny one. What else is there? There's, there's the kid who doesn't brush her teeth. But Mrs. Piggle Wiggle is just so so beautifully written and uh, and so, so funny. I would recommend, Julia, of course you should read them all out loud together. That's really fun. But if your kids are into audiobooks as well for drives and things like that, there's a gr- bunch of great versions on Audible of Mrs. Piggle Wiggle read by a reader named Karen White who really gets... The humor of the stories. I think one of the funniest things that my daughter used to always laugh at in the Mrs. Piggle Wiggle stories were the names, the names of the various neighbors, because there's always a gossipy phone call at the beginning of each story where the mother just simply doesn't know what to do. I guess that's a place where there is, you know, it, it is dated, right? The moms are mainly stay-at-home moms and the dads are, are going off to work, but the moms are great characters too. And And so she'll call another mom in the neighborhood and say, I simply don't know what to do. Johnny won't Wash his feet. And of course, Mrs. Piggle gets recommended. But the other person she calls is always named something absolutely absurd. Like, oh, God, I can't even (laughs) come up with a Betty McDonald name. But they're always just really, really wonderful. And her kid's name will be like Hubert von Flirtzenberger or whatever. And they're just really (laughs) fun, fun um, use of language in those stories.
1: Um, I will say I think I've maligned Anne M. Martin, who is not a bartleby esque machine of scribes, but seems to be just a writer living in the Hudson Valley, like you, Steve. So I think oh. it looks like these these Missy Wiggle tomes are her most recent project and she appears to be an actual human, not a conglomerate or even an oligopoly. So you should um, you know, you should become one of the Daffy neighbors, Steve. That's all I can recommend to you.
0: How do you know this is not my nom de plume though? <laughs> Break some news here on the Culture Gap Fest. Uh, Okay, I'm going to take you all down a dad rock blind alley right now, so buckle up. But, um, you know, the wild thing to me about Elvis Costello is that he's just this astonishing melodist. I mean, he, he comes up with some has come up with some wonderful melodies, but he's not really a hit maker for a variety, I think, of other reasons. But he really tried hard to write a hit. And so he worked his normal agonizing songwriting process down to a five minute toss-away and came up with Every Day I Write the Book, a song that he himself professes to hate. It's a good song. It's fine. It's I mean in some ways a wonderful song, but um paid off for him a little bit. I think it was his biggest hit. Uh he never played it live, very rarely. I mean once the kind of tour cycle that it was introduced on um, was over. He never played it live again and wanted to forget about it. Then he toured with the singer-songwriter Ron Sexsmith, who, as it turns out, plays a beautiful version of that song live, finger-picked, uh, beautifully sung, really heartfelt, and he turns it into an, an exquisite song. And um, Elvis Costello now tells this story from the stage. He says, well, I was touring with Ron Sexsmith in um, Japan, and he would play this song. And so now I play the song, I play it the way he played it. And he said, just as an aside, the Japanese press printed his name as Ron Sexmoth. And Costello then makes this very raw comment about how apt that nickname actually is. And then he plays this, he does this in concert now all the time and then plays this beautiful finger picked, you know, acoustic guitar version of Um, every day I write the book. I recommend both watching Elvis do it. I recommend watching Ron Sexmoth do it. This led me to try to become a fan of Ron Sexsmith because of the beautiful performance of that song, and I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't grok it. I just there was something about it. And then finally, I heard the song of his called "Gold in Them Hills," and it, it that the House of Cards collapsed inside me. I'm now a Ron Sexsmith fan. I love that song. I love that record. Check out Ron Sexsmith. He's really, really good. And then the other thing I wanted to quickly endorse is, you know, it only took eleven or so years, 11 plus years of doing the show to realize Julia Turner could pass the Turing test and was plausibly human. It's when she said that um, to collapse the house of cards inside her, she just listens to the Spinanes, who kept me alive for at least (laughs) 18 months during my graduate school education. I heard a song, a Spinane song that I didn't know called Luscious. Julia, I don't know if you know that one. Mm. That is a
1: fucking song. I don't know if I know it.
0: That is a fuck of a lot of really good song right there. Luscious by the Spinanes, Golden Hills by Ron Sexsmith, both heartbreakers. Highly recommended. Uh, thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Stephen. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us, and I say this every week because I really mean it love the emails we get from our listeners email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a line on Twitter we've got a Twitter feed it's at slatecultfest our producer is Jessamyn Molly our production assistant is Cleo Levin for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner I'm Stephen Metcalf thank you so much for joining us we will see you soon I'm giving you
1: a long in the every day
2: every day every day every day I write the
0: book.
1: Chapter one, we didn't really get
2: along. Chapter two, I think I fell in love.